0: Welcome to Factually, I'm Adam Conover, and look, despite how fucked up the world we live in is, and don't get me wrong, it is fucked up, modern life still has its miracles. You know, we've got brain surgery, air travel, video conferencing, and more amazingly, the ability to ignore a request to video conference. Whew, love that modern science. But there is another pillar of modern life, equally miraculous, that we take completely for granted. I'm talking about Trash. Think about it. There's this can in my house. I can throw whatever I don't want inside of it. And every week, I just wheel it out in front of my building and poof, it disappears. It's gone. Just gone. I never have to think about it again. I don't know where it goes. It's just out of my life. This is a pretty crucial innovation in modern society, especially for an economy like ours, which is based around consumption, around buying as much stuff as possible. America only has around 4% of the world's population, but we produced 30% of the planet's total waste. If we couldn't disappear that trash, the refuse of all of the wonderful things we're buying, why, we'd be overwhelmed by it. And then maybe we wouldn't want to buy more stuff. And because that waste just sort of disappears we hardly ever think about where it goes. I know, I know. You, you know about landfills. You've got a picture of them in your head, but you don't really know where they are. And you've heard about the plastic patch covering the area the size of Texas, somewhere in the South Pacific. But come on, admit it. The main thing we know about our trash is that it disappears. But of course... It doesn't really disappear. Trash is actually an industry worth almost half a trillion dollars. And the details of that industry, the story of where your trash actually goes, has way more fascinating twists and turns than you can possibly expect. Take your Christmas tree lights, for instance. If you have a couple bulbs that don't work, you're probably going to junk the tangled mess. To you at this point, these lights are worthless, right? But they're not. In fact, as our guest today reported a couple years ago, there's actually a thriving economy for recycling Christmas lights and its global capital isn't Santa's village on the North Pole. No, it's a Chinese town called Shijiao, where over 20 million pounds of Christmas lights are reprocessed every single year. In Shajow, busted Christmas lights dumped in American recycling bins or dropped to the Salvation Army are crunched into bales the size of a love seat that weigh over a ton. Workers toss untangled lights into shredders that cut them up into millimeter-sized pieces, the pieces mixed with water to form a muddy but still Christmassy muck that gets spread along an angled vibrating table with water flowing across it. The copper from the wiring and the brass from the light bulb sockets floats one way and the plastics and glass from the insulation and light bulbs floats another. And in this way, junky Christmas lights are turned into four readily sellable commodities in the world's industrial powerhouse. Now, that's an incredible story, but what's true for busted Christmas tree lights is also true for so much of our waste, whether it's an old cell phone or a dumb t-shirt you got on vacation. Our waste is worth something, and our objects live longer, more exciting lives than we typically understand because of this massive industry that is invisible to so many of us. The truth is, our waste doesn't really disappear, it just migrates out of our field of vision. What we call trash is really just a matter of perspective. Well, here today to talk about trash and the truth about the global secondhand industry, our guest today is Adam Minter. He's a journalist for Bloomberg Opinion and most recently the author of Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. He has devoted his life to studying this topic, and I think you're going to love this interview. Please welcome Adam Minter. Adam, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So you've uh, devoted your life to studying trash, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> trash recycling second hand you bet you grew up in a junkyard is that the case
1: yeah yeah my uh, it goes back uh, several generations my great-grandfather when he came to the United States um, he wanted to actually go into vaudeville believe it or not he came from southern Russia um, somehow he got on a boat to Galveston Texas so not much vaudeville going on there so he did what you do when you can't do anything else and that is he started picking up you know trash from the street and selling it bits of clothing and and scrap metal and, and that be, he eventually made his way up to Minneapolis and that became the family business. And, and some of my earliest memories and well into my twenties are, are being in the family, uh, junk warehouse.
0: Wow. Well, the reason I came to learn about your work was I read an interview with you somewhere and I can't remember where it was, unfortunately, mm-hmm. apologies to that uh, journalist mm-hmm. who was talking to you. Um, but it really stuck with me. You wrote that, or you said that, uh, Americans are far more moral about what we throw away than what we buy that when we buy stuff we sort of do it willy-nilly maybe we try to buy the you know ethically made thing every once in a while but most of the time we just buy crap but -hmm. then when we throw it away we suddenly feel extremely moral about it we say oh well this can't just go to the landfill we gotta find some use for this we i gotta i gotta give to the goodwill i gotta give to my kids i gotta you know, make it into a planter pot or something like we've got right. this like pang when we throw things away. And that really stuck with me as man, this whole part of American life or fr- frankly, probably life for people around the world. I'm sure Americans are not unique in this respect that we don't think about that often. Yeah,
1: well, that's right. And, and it took me a long time to get my head around why people get so emotional you know, about their recycling and why they get so emotional about their used clothes. And I think it it goes to something really deep in in our culture and sort of consumer cultures. And that is we invest so much of our identities within our stuff. You know, that stuff, if you go to the department store, it's not yours yet. You buy it. But when it comes time to throw it away, especially, you know, what we call durable goods, your computer, your clothing, your furniture, you've got memories invested in those things. It's a part of who you are you know, and that's what we do in contemporary America in particular. We assemble these identities around the stuff that we buy. You know, I may have this designer shirt on my, you know, on my chest or, or it may be, you know, I use a certain kind of phone, which is supposed to project, you know, some image of affluence or who I am. And so we invest so much in these things emotionally. And when we let go of them into the recycling bin, into the trash, I think we grow very emotional about what happens to them afterwards, because in a sense, we're sort of jettisoning some of our identity uh, along with it. And, and we, and we want to maintain some control of that. And And you know, in my travels and in my reporting, i've I've sort of verified this for myself, seeing it happen over and over where where these emotions get mixed in with sort of the discarding process.
0: Yeah, when I read this, I was, so to tell you a little bit about what was going on in my life at the time. Yeah, uh, my uh, grandparents on my mom's side had recently passed away, and they were real pack rats. They left a house that was just full of they lived in this house for 50 years and it was just full of the stuff of their life and my mom and her siblings were left with sorting through all of it and my mom was traveling to you know the the town where she grew up a couple times a year to like go through this house full of stuff and she's calling me saying hey Adam do you want these old Atari computers like we got to get rid of these old Atari computers and you and grandpa used to use the Atari computers and I was like Well, mom, send me a keepsake or two, but, you know, but no, I want the stuff that maybe has collector's value for me because I like old hardware, but like, I don't need boxes and boxes of this stuff. And she's like selling things individually on eBay, like putting them up. And at one point she was like, you know, we could just call the estate company and have them come take it all away and, and cut us a check for, you know, however much they think it's worth. And then they sell it all. And I was like, mom, why don't you, why don't you do that? Like that would be such a, so much less work for you and a load off of your mind. And, uh, she said, cause it seemed to be stressing her out and she's, but she said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. I, I like going through these things, yeah. but it was hard to sort of parse. Right. Um, yeah. What, what about that was where those emotions were coming from and, and what was the most productive use of them? And, a lot of it seemed to be based in that desire of, well, I can't let this stuff go to waste. Yeah, like if yeah. the estate company comes and takes it away, well, then they might th- throw it in a landfill. But if I sell these things on eBay, well, at least then they're going to someone who wants the thing, right? right. But to do a, that with a, the volume it's so huge. Yeah,
1: there's, there's an even deeper element to that. And I'm so glad you brought that up in your grandparents because, um, you know, my last book, Secondhand, was was really inspired by something similar, which was the passing of my mother. And it was left to my sister and I to clean out her very modest home. She didn't have a lot of stuff, but it's still stuff and it's still mom's stuff. And so you have that initial call where, you know, there's some jewelry there. My sister wanted the jewelry. I wanted some of the jewelry, you know, for my wife and maybe there were some books, but then you're left with the furniture And then you're left with the dishes. And, you know, and what we ended up doing, because we needed to get her out of her home, we ended up putting it in someone's garage, you know. And then over the next year or two, as both of us came into town, slowly we'd go through it, take what we wanted, drop off the stuff at the Goodwill. And then uh, I remember this very clearly. And it was a really sort of crystallizing moment for me. We got down to the very end. And there was my mom's china. And my mom loved her china. It was a set of Lennox china. And my sister lives in a small New York apartment. Um, She already has wedding china. You know, at the time I was living in Shanghai in a one bedroom with my wife. Uh, I wasn't going to bring china back to China.
0: You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) It just wasn't going to happen. They have plenty. They they have plenty. And so there was this moment of standoff with my sister. And I I remember very clearly in the garage saying, well, you know, this meant a lot to mom. She'd want you to have it. And my sister coming back saying, no, she'd want you to have it. No, she'd want you to have it. No, she'd want you to have it. And at the end of it, it's like, all right, the hell with it. We're going to Goodwill. And and we drove it over to Goodwill together. And it was a very emotional experience because my mom loved serving meals on that china. And so when you're letting go of that china, um, you you know, you're letting go of that memory of your mother. You're letting go of that part of yourself. Um, And in a sense, you're taking this thing that has so much invested in it And anonymizing it. That's what I've thought about it. You know, when you drop something at the Goodwill, all of a sudden it no longer has that stuff. It disappears into the system. And, and I think that sort of gets us close to what's going on when, when it becomes so hard to let go of these things. I mean, we have so much emotionally invested in them.
0: Yeah. But I think about that. That's a real asymmetry in that it becomes anonymized to other people. Like I think about the things I'm collecting in my life. I have, I have, most of my childhood video games, right? I'm a video game player and and I have them and and I now have them in my adult home and they're sort of in a cherished spot. Like I I make sure that they're kept up well because these are like totems from my childhood. And then also they're like a somewhat valuable collection. They're a fun thing to collect. So I occasionally buy new ones, old, I buy vintage video game cartridges that had a certain emotional resonance for me and I added to the collection. And I think, well, hold on a second. What am I building here? Because yeah. unlike, uh, say, a library where, you know, that has value to anybody uh, yeah. or, or some sort of objectively valuable collection. Well, once I die, no one cares about this. This is just a this is just a collection of stuff. Nobody yeah. gives maybe my maybe my, uh, a, a, you know, a good friend or my girlfriend or my parents might care if I were to drop dead. Oh, these Adam love these things so much. Right. But like, you know, if everybody dropped dead and people just came to this house, they'd be we don't know. There's some video games on the shelf. Who gives a shit? And that's yeah. Such, yeah. so strange. Yeah, I mean, Our stuff th- becomes just like nothing as soon as we stop thinking about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and that was one of it's been one of the great lessons is, lessons to me of my work over the last five years is that most of the stuff that you own, most of the stuff in your home is pretty much worthless <laughs> to anyone <laughs> but you. And, and you yeah. find that out, you know, spending time in Goodwills or and, and even the stuff that you say, oh, well, this is collectible. You know, I can go on eBay right now and I can sell. Uh, you know this cartridge for you know eighty bucks. You know, yeah. And and I only spent ten bucks on it or five bucks on it at a garage sale. But you know, it's funny when I was when I was spending some time at antique stores recently, and what, especially with this latest book, you know, I, I I had this really interesting experience. This wonderful man by the name of Dick Richter in, St- in Stillwater, Minnesota. He was walking me through his big antique mall, and we came upon the Hummel figurines. You know what Hummels are? They're these German. Yeah porcelains. And, you know, about 15, 20 years ago, these things would sell for three, 400 bucks each. And Dick's mm-hmm. walking me through the store and he said, I used to make so much money off these. We'd have them at the front of the store. Now he says, I can't sell them two thirds off because the people who love this kind of stuff all died off. You know, yeah. they had a period where they had a lot of money then they don't. And he said, so now we're doing this. And he walked me through the store and he took me to where a guy was selling, you know, there's calling calling vintage Star Wars stuff, you know, uh, you know, vintage Battlestar Galactica stuff, which, you know, uh, to my grandmother who was a collector of art glass, you know, from the 1920s, if you told her a plastic figurine was vintage, you know, she'd probably slap you, you know, yeah. but that's, but that's become the collectible. And, you know, once we're, I'm sorry to say it once we're dead and gone, those plastic figurines, if they haven't melted, um, you know, aren't going to be yeah. worth much either. They're going to have a trouble getting rid of them at two thirds off.
0: Yeah. It's like collectibles are, just a collective delusion uh, yeah. among. It's the same thing. My stuff is valuable to me. Well, collectibles are valuable to the group of collectors. But once all those people are dead, it won't matter. I'm also right. reminded of like I. I have a small you know vinyl record collection uh, because I am uh, a man in his thirties and <laughs> I. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know and I I uh, I listen to all kinds of music. I listen to opera sometimes and I bought sure. like what I I was at like a you know, a record store and I, Oh, here's an opera. I know. Let me in an old box set. Right? right. And I bought it. It was like a nice collection of like a really good Wagner opera. Wow. Cool. And then I bought, I brought it to, uh, uh, Miba records. Cause I was like, I don't need this anymore. I'll sell it. You know, you can resell yeah. these things. And they were going through all the records I was buying. And they're like, we're not buying this. And I was like, why not? This is in great condition. This is a great set. <laughs> and he's like, Nobody buys opera on vinyl and they made so much of this stuff in like the sixties and seventies. Right. It was sort of right. the Encyclopedia Britannica of records. If you were like a classical yeah. music fan, you'd like buy the really nice edition of uh Divalcare or whatever. And right. now nobody wants it. Right. It's yeah. like and it's like the weird detritus of the vinyl records industry. Um, cause no one gives a shit about it. So there's all these collections that people probably spent like $5,000 on classical music fans back in the sixties. And now it's like completely valueless, even though they all play well. And it's some of the greatest music ever written. Um, but let's get to, uh, the secondhand goods piece of it, because I think that's something that everyone is really interested in. Cause look, I've got a box of stuff in my garage right now. I'm taking that to Goodwill as soon as, you know, Goodwill's open again, Right. right. Um, and it's some good stuff. I got some, some old uh, electronics equipment. I got some great books. I got some clothes. And I'm imagining that, okay, by doing that, all that stuff's going to have a second life. Um, right. It's all going to go on the, on the shelves, on the racks. People are going to buy it. They're going to bring it home, and nothing's going to be wasted. Uh, that's the fantasy that I indulge in of going to Goodwill. Yeah. How true is that fantasy?
1: Well— Let me let me answer that in two ways. I mean, the first first way to answer that is Goodwill wants you to bring in stuff that they can sell. I mean, they have every incentive to do it. You know, and there's a lot of myths about what Goodwill does and doesn't do. Um, One thing they do is they really want everything that comes in to be worth something, because if it's not worth something, they have a trash bill as well. And so they're going (laughs) to end up paying somebody to pick up the dumpster with your junk in it. You know, and so and you see that if you're at a goodwill, I spent I've spent so much time in the back rooms at Goodwills, and people will literally drop off garbage at a goodwill.
0: You know, here you throw this away.
1: Yeah, no, it's what it is. Or the you know rat-infested couches. I mean, I've seen it all, and you know, and that's just they don't want to pay to dump it at the landfill, so they they drop it off at Goodwill.
0: Goodwill generally isn't going to say no to it. Even when I'm putting my bag together, I'm like looking at stuff, going like, is is this valuable? Meh, let's let Goodwill decide, you know, right. like I'll, I'll, I'll be inclusive with what I'm putting in the Goodwill box. So certainly.
1: Yeah. So so there is that element to it. So they want you to give good stuff and, and they want to and they try very hard uh, to, you know, to to make sure the stuff is good. So the general rule of thumb for Goodwill or really any donation based charity, Salvation Army, you know, whatever it is, um, and thrift shop, is that about one third of the stuff that goes on the shelves sells.
0: Okay. Wow. One third, a third,
1: just a third. Now, you know, some stores do a better job. They get better stuff. I mean, if you're a goodwill in an affluent neighborhood and goodwill purposely tries to put stores in affluent neighborhoods because affluent people give good stuff, you Mm -hmm. know, um, you know, you're going to see that, you know, one third tick upward. Um, you know, if you have goodwills in lower income neighborhoods, it's going to in many cases, tick downward because, you know, for instance, clothes are going to be worn longer and harder. And so it's just not what my, you know, my, I've, I always heard them say it's not merchandise, you know, uh, sort of an old school phrase. So, you know, it's about one third that sells off the shelves, though, on average. That doesn't mean that the other two thirds um, that's on the shelves is, is headed straight to a dumpster. But not by any means. And and that the stuff that goes on the shelves, I should back up. I mean, you know, when they do their processing in the back room, they're going to throw the stuff that's garbage in the garbage before it hits the shelves. Yeah. Um, but but then what happens to the stuff that doesn't sell off the shelves? I mean, um, it depends where it is. But if it's most goodwills, they send it to one of their own discounters called an outlet center where they then start selling it by the pound. Um, and a lot of stuff moves by the pound, clothing by the pound. And those are amazing places to go to. If there's an outlet center near you, they're really worth visiting. Um, the stuff that doesn't sell at the outlet center, uh, they'll go through it. Uh, the stuff that, you know, can't be exported, that won't have a market in other places, will end up in the landfill. The other stuff, uh, has a range of places. A lot of it's exported to developing countries that have huge demand for secondhand clothing, secondhand electronics. Um, and the clothing that isn't good enough to be sold in these places, a lot of it will be sent to be made into rags. Um, and there's a huge industry globally that makes rags from old clothes, um, billions and billions of them used in hotels, restaurants, car washes, wherever it is. So So the stuff tends to get used. If there's a use to be made um, you know, the thrift stores
0: will find somebody uh, to sell it to. Wow. that I actually had no idea about that. So behind just the stuff on the Goodwill shelf, uh, which is what I, you know, our, our initial thought of where all these things are living, yeah. there's like this massive industry that's processing and chewing up all the different things that we donate and moving it from place to place based on whatever grade it is.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's there's sort of these hidden industries. If we just talk about North America, for example, clothing. Um, uh, Houston, uh, which we all know, and Mississauga, Ontario, which is a suburb of Toronto, are the great hubs for selling used clothing uh, around the world in the United States. So what happens in a place like Mississauga, where I've spent a bunch of time, there's about 20 businesses there, all of which are South Asian-owned Pakistani or Indian, and they will pro- they will buy from Goodwills and thrift stores around North America used clothing that hasn't sold on their shelves. And they will bring it to their warehouses, tens of thousands of tons a month of clothing, sort it for different markets. So they'll say, oh, well, okay, you know, these these summer clothes will do really well in Nigeria, you know, and so they'll pack for Nigeria and they'll know exactly what should be going, you know, into places like Nigeria and Ghana and Benin. Or this is going to be a load that's, you know, ideal for, you know, this buyer we have in Klang, Malaysia, or this is, you know, perfect for somebody in uh, Panapat, India, so there's there's these enormous hidden networks, hidden if you don't look for them. If you look for them, they're still hard to find. Believe me, it took me a long time and lots of cold calling <laughs> to get into Mississauga, Ontario. But it, but it's a massive, massive industry that's crucial to clothing people, uh, you know, in emerging market countries, among among other tasks it accomplishes.
0: I, I think most people probably don't even have. It's probably even counterintuitive to folks that these things are being shipped around the world like that's not something that we think of as being loaded into a container and put on a ship and brought you know to africa or to asia is our used clothes we imagine things going the other way but never that our used things are valuable enough to spend fossil fuels to like put them on a container ship
1: yeah. And yet they are. Uh, and that, that goes to a lot of things. I mean, it depends on the emerging market. But but, you know, there's two things that attract people in emerging markets um, to, to use clothing from North America and from Europe. Number one, um, it's durable. And, mm-hmm. you know, and you think, well, wait, it's used clothing. Well, you have to think of it as massively pre tested. You know, if somebody (laughs) if somebody in Minnesota has worn something for a while, you know, it's probably, you know, and and washed it and it's gone through a goodwill and they've looked at it. You know, it's not something that's going to fall apart when it goes through the washer. And so, you know, if you're in Ghana, where I've spent a lot of time, um, that blouse, that pair of jeans, those shorts are going to be, you know, far more attractive than a very cheaply produced fast fashion item that's just been delivered directly from China. Um, and the second attraction, of course, has always been, um, uh, the cost, you know, it's, it's a low cost garment. Um, the interesting thing is, um, you know, increasingly it's not so low cost. Um, you know, the, the low cost fast fashion that's being made in places like Southeast Asia is actually become cheaper in many cases than used clothing. So now used clothing is directly competing against new, you know, in places like Ghana, even though the, uh, the, the new clothing is really not very durable, not very good
0: quality. Wow. Yeah, it, this is really interesting because it's sort of, you know, you hear uh, regarding clothes or electronics. Well, the logic of capitalism, you know, means wants us to turn over our supply of those things very often. Wants to say this is out of fashion, so buy new stuff. You know, this right. uh, these electronics are out are obsolete. Throw it away and buy something new. Yeah. Um, but the logic of capitalism at the same time also wants to extract value from anything that has any value whatsoever. So of course, a system like this would spring up. Like, yeah, what. One of the things that first cued me into this was I started seeing around L.A. these bins by a company called U.S. Again, like use again, that they're just Mm -hmm. like literally scattered around the city um, bins where you can drop clothes. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is not a nonprofit. This is not goodwill. This is like a company that is just collecting used clothes like on the street. So people could be, you know, pooping in bags and throwing them in those bins. Like (laughs) it's, it's probably quite a job to like sort through those things. But these clothes must have value if only to turn them into rags or something.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, just in terms of like, you know, emerging market countries, I I mean, uh, you know, I keep returning to West Africa uh, because I've spent a lot of time there. And and one of the things that surprised me most when I first went to West Africa and was walking around uh, Ghana, you know, big cities like Accra, which is the capital of Ghana, or you go north a little bit. I spent a bunch of time in a place called Tamale, which is the capital of the northern region. There is retail in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Benin, in these countries is secondhand. You know, Mm. 90 percent of what you see on the streets, the apparel retailers are retailing secondhand apparel. They're not retailing
0: new. And so you just their entire clothing economy is our secondhand goods
1: and Europe's and Australia's and not so much Japan's. That stuff stays in Southeast Asia, but it's that's huge in Southeast Asia. And, you know, I think we have this image in in North America that this stuff is just dumped on Africa. Oh, these poor Africans, they need it. Uh uh. I mean, they're as fashion conscious as we are. You know, and there's a premium on designer clothes. You know, in in this Internet age, they're looking at the same fashions on their phones as we are, and they're looking to wear that stuff. And Mm. so, you know, the people who supply this to them in places like Houston and, and Mississauga, they know what to package for that market in Nigeria. And when it gets to Nigeria or it gets to Benin, I mean, these sorting warehouses where they have it, they then will sort these clothes, you know, oh, this city in Nigeria likes this color, this fashion, this type of garment. I mean, it gets that granular. Um, so, I mean, that's where you see the profit, you know, the profit motive. Uh, it's, it's, it's really deep. The market is enormous.
0: That's fascinating. T- tell me about electronics. I imagine that there must be a similar process like that. I mean, even now, I think we're all used to when I get a new phone, hey, this company Gazelle or another company like that yes. will buy my phone. Um, and where does that phone go when we sell it to that company?
1: Well, globally, I mean, this is really interesting. The fastest growing niche of the global smartphone market is secondhand. Uh,
0: People Mm. are buying
1: phones, you know, secondhand phones in in bigger quantities than ever before. And increasingly, like that market for phones is starting to look like the market for cars. Like in the United States, 90% of the cars that sell every year are used cars, which makes sense, you know, uh, because they're expensive,
0: you know? Yeah, we all all know they depreciate most quickly at the beginning. So you get a you get a three-year pre-owned, and you get a better deal, and it's just as good a car. And that—that's what—that's what the Smart Consumer Reports reading person does.
1: Yeah, and and in the age of the thousand-dollar smartphone, you know, uh, the same thing is happening. So these phones that you're, you know, you know, you can go and you can trade in a phone at Apple now. You know, just like you can yeah. trade in a car at Toyota. You know, and those right. phones. Uh, you know, those phones are refurbished. They clean them up and they sell them, uh, you know, probably in North America. You can order them online. You know, Apple has a thriving used phone business on its website. Um, you know, I, I know for a fact that they work with distributors around the world. So if it's an older model phone, say it's a 6S, you know, that phone is not going to stay in North America. People in North America don't want the 6S, but, you know, maybe somebody in Southeast Asia does. And so you have these incredible networks of electronics distribution chains. Um, Hong Kong is one of the great uh, hubs for it because uh, Chinese are the world's largest consumers of smartphones. They also sell them at a higher rate. And so much of that stuff flows into Hong Kong. There's one uh, auction house there that's dealing in millions of dollars of phones um, that are auctioned off to various secondhand sellers around Southeast Asia every day. Uh, wow you know, and and it's interesting. Again, the markets get very granular. I mean, the people who analyze this business, because it's hugely lucrative, they'll say, okay, you know, Malaysia is at a stage where it'll buy a used iPhone 8, but it won't buy the 7. That's too old. So the 7 should probably have to go to Myanmar, you know, and the 6S, the market for that, because of where income levels are and where technology is turning over, the market for that's going to be, say, in you know, Madagascar or wherever it is, you know, so it's, it's that granular and the demand is huge on a number of levels. I mean, one, it's cheaper technology, um, but two, uh, everybody in the emerging markets wants to get online. That's where the action's at, you know, Mm -hmm. commerce, it takes place on WhatsApp and in India, you know, it takes place on WhatsApp all over Africa. But you need a phone that can run WhatsApp uh, to do that. So people want to get their hands on phones, and and the easiest way to get your hand on a phone that's not going to break down is get one that's been massively pre tested in Europe or North America, or, you know, or or Japan.
0: So you said that we often have this idea that we're dumping those things on other countries. Yeah. Um, how do I mean? How do people in those countries think about this trade? Like. Uh, it, it, what you're yeah. doing is you're telling me a story that's sort of complicating my moral reasoning about sure. all these things, right? Sure. Like, I try to hold on to my phone an extra length of time because I don't want to create more electronics waste. But you're telling me, hold on a second, someone's going to get use out of it. So now I'm trying to think about how that changes my decision to buy. Sure. And, you know, we feel morally positive about bringing our stuff to goodwill. Um, but I've heard, oh, wait, not all the stuff uh, goes where you think it does. But you're telling me, again, there's this like really vital industry going on behind the scenes. So, yeah, I mean, how how should we how do we feel about that?
1: Uh, I I personally feel pretty good about it. I mean, mm. uh, you know, I, I let, me, let me answer in a couple ways. One, um, you know, if, you, if you're an environmentalist, if you if you care about Um, carbon emissions and changing climate, you know, our number one goal should be um, to reduce carbon emissions, you know, of the stuff that we buy and everything else. Well, the best way in your daily consumption, um, you know, life, the stuff you're buying, the best way to lower your carbon footprint is to have your stuff last longer because you're not buying as much of it. You know, and we know looking at uh, all kinds of studies, including Apple puts out a study every year when it puts out a new phone, what is the carbon footprint of its new phone? And the biggest part of the carbon footprint of an iPhone is the manufacturing process. So the less we manufacture these things and the longer we use them, you know, you're lowering the carbon footprint. So in that sense, I feel very good about it. But uh, from from an electronic standpoint, I also feel very good about it because the secondhand trade gives people access to technology. It allows them to sort of get on the train of, of, of you know, moving up the income ladder, of being able to start businesses, of being able to access e-learning, of being able to do all the things that we do with our phones and improve their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And it's not just phone, it's computers as well. And so if you go to any country where that imports this stuff, um, I have never once seen a load of electronics dumped in a dump. Um, what you, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way because it's not somebody in, you know, Los Angeles paying to send that load of phones to, uh, I don't know, Ghana, so they can go into a trash dump. Why would you do that? It's cheaper to just dump it in a trash dump in LA. Yeah. You know, it's like Amazon, somebody in Ghana is paying the shipping. They're paying for those phones because they're going to sell them. And I've been covering this trade for a long time and that's how it always works. The people who receive the stuff, who import it, They pay for it. And let's face it, no shipping line is going to say, if you call up, Adam Conover calls up, you know, Mayor's shipping line says, hey, I've got a container full of phones. Um, I'm just going to drop it off at the port. Could you just go dump that in the cheapest (laughs) country possible? It doesn't work that way. People are paying for this stuff. Now, that's not to say bad stuff doesn't happen, um, because it does. But generally, that's how the trade works, and that's why I feel pretty good about it.
0: Well, I remember seeing uh, an episode of Anthony Bourdain's show and, and yeah. I can't I can't remember which country was said it might have been Ghana or one of the other Kenya. ones. That, I know the one Kenya. you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And so they talk about, uh, you know, the secondhand trade here is so all pervasive that there is no local clothing industry or at least right. those the one that there is has to compete with an immense quantity of secondhand American clothes, right? Like if you want to yeah. make your own shirts, you're competing with every American Eagle <laughs> shirt that was ever, you know, sent here from, from the United States. And the folks sure. here are feel conflicted about it because, okay, well, on the one hand, we get like pretty good clothes, pretty cheap. On the other hand, there's no way to have a local economy here based around, you know, local, local clothing making. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can speak to that at all. Sure.
1: Sure. Well, I, you know, I love, I love Bourdain uh, as a big fan. am a big fan, um, but he got yeah. it wrong on that point. And, oh, really? and I think, yeah. And, and I think uh, what he got wrong, and I think a lot of activists get wrong um, is that they, they don't pay attention to the new clothes coming into these countries because the biggest competition for their new clothing industries is not secondhand clothing. It's low cost, cheap clothing imported uh-huh. from places like Southeast Asia, South Asia, China. And their new clothing industries have been devastated by these low-cost imports in the same way that, you know, textile manufacturing in North America was devastated by, you know, uh, low-cost clothing from China and Southeast Asia. And that's the really corrosive, uh, you know, issue there. You know, there's and, and that started as far back as the 1990s. So even if you ban all of the secondhand clothing going into places in East Africa, and East Africa is actually the world's largest market, collectively for secondhand clothing, you would still see these local textile mills, apparel makers struggle because they're going to be struggling against low cost clothing coming in uh, from Southeast Asia and China.
0: Got it. So that is the next thing I want to talk to you about is low cost clothing and uh, the degree to which our goods are becoming less reusable. But I got to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Adam Minter. So, Adam, let's get back into this issue of low-cost new clothing and low-cost other goods. I believe you've written about how we've got this amazing secondhand system, right? That like the secondhand goods have a lot more value than we think they do. And, you know, this is something that we should maybe try to grow and protect in some way. But the biggest threat to it is crappy goods that can't be reused (laughs) right
1: right it's the sort of the great paradox inherent in in the whole trade and and i think we all kind of know that's a problem i mean uh, how many times have you said well they just don't make it like they used to and if not you you know your parents or grandparents said it and 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 we all kind of know it i i sort of knew it but i didn't entirely believe it until i started spending time in the sorting rooms at goodwill's and, Ooh. uh, and what, and, and that's really an interesting experience because, yeah, you know, I, I, I would sit there with the uh, primarily their women who do the work, uh, who go through the clothing, look at it, evaluate the brand, evaluate the fabric. And what they started telling me is, you know, this seam is not sewn as well as it used to. This fabric is thinner. Mm. You know, this brand that we used to be able to put a ticket for $4.99 on, um, we're now putting a $2.99 ticket on because uh, you can see it's already worn out. And after a couple more washes, it's going to wear out further. And what Goodwill has found because so much of the clothing coming in um now is just of this lower quality it's the fast fashion the forever 21s but even not just those even well-known brands um, that we've always associated with quality again they're just not making them as well the fabrics aren't just they're just not making as well more of that stuff is going to the rag makers more of that stuff is going into the dumpster and so goodwill's you know, a lot of goodwills find themselves needing to collect even more clothing than they used to to put the same amount on the floor and to save the same to to, to make wow. the same amount. And I mean, and it's, it's an actual phenomenon and it really has. I, I don't want to say. Uh, it has Goodwills and thrift stores alarmed, but it certainly has them concerned. You know, the good news is Americans don't have any hesitation about throwing away lots of clothes. So the flow still keeps coming in. But <laughs> right. again, more and more of it just is not marketable on that floor. Because as we said earlier, one of the things people want from a secondhand good is the massive pre-testing, you know, the durability. And and increasingly, that's just not the
0: case. You want the jacket that has been worn outside every day for five years and still, hey, it's not in fashion anymore, but doesn't have any burst seams. It's still warm. It's still big and poofy. You don't want the thing from H&M that I I remember like when I first started going to like an H&M and it felt like. If you just, as you were browsing the racks, like the clothes would just fall apart, like tissue paper in your, in your hands they are so thin and, and like yeah. barely constructed. Um, yeah. And you'd, you'd wear the clothes for six months and then go like, this is useless to anybody. <laughs> like right. I've, just, I've only worn it 10 times and it's falling right. apart. And so the problem is more of that stuff's going to the landfill now from a waste perspective.
1: Yeah. More of it's going to the landfill, more of it may go to the uh, rag maker's Potentially, mm-hmm. if it's all cotton, they don't want polyester, you don't want a polyester rag, um, it doesn't absorb very well. Um, so yeah, more of a and, and it's not just a North American problem either. I mean, uh, you know, there's this incredible tension in developing countries. you know, they want to buy cheap new stuff. you know, I think everybody likes to buy that new thing. Of course, I like to buy secondhand, but there's something about buying new, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. and um, and they want to buy that, but you know, the stuff that they're able to afford to buy, is, again, of the lowest quality, and, and manufacturers, especially Chinese manufacturers, are very good at manufacturing so they can meet that price point. So they'll make a really cheap good so they can sell that shirt that, you know, can sell in in Kenya. But, but that shirt they can sell in Kenya, maybe it only lasts a few washes, you know. And so the quality of the stuff that you're finding in these countries is even lower. And, and what's interesting about that is that consumers in these countries know it. Um, you know, they will say, I, I heard it over and over, especially with electronics. We don't want to buy new Chinese stuff because they make it for us, meaning they're making it very cheaply so they can sell it at a cheap price. We want that secondhand stuff from North wow. America because it's made for you. You know, which is just a mind blowing revelation. But it's in some sense, in some sense, it's a real tribute to Chinese manufacturing because they can take the shirt you're making and make it at a price point, better quality for sale where you are, and then make the same shirt, same colors, looks the same, and make it for somebody in Kenya and sell it, you know, for 20% of the price. But the problem is you can probably wash it, you know, 25, 30, 40 times. In Kenya, they're going to wash it at most three to five. And that's, and that's a really interesting. Phenomenon, um, disturbing phenomenon in a lot of ways. And I don't think I've completely gotten my head around it, but it's happening.
0: I feel like a connection to that, going back to electronics, must be how much harder it is to repair electronics now. Yes. Um, That, like Apple, Apple's the famous example that, you know, an Apple laptop. Uh, you know 10 years ago you could sort of dismantle and service yourself if you were good enough to do it or you could bring it to a third-party repair shop and now when you buy a a new mac everything is glued in like anyone who's tried to have a single piece repaired on a mac knows that well they basically just replace the entire computer um, because they charge you for that um, if you're no no longer under warranty Um, but uh, you know the ability of you know anyone other than Apple to maintain these things and resell them is, uh, being reduced. Is that also happening across the pipeline and is that affecting this pipeline? You know, it,
1: yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, Apple, I, and I'm not sure if Apple was the first company to, to make it impossible to change the battery in your phone. You know, imagine, <laughs> you know, back when I had a flip phone, you know, a dumb phone. Yeah. I mean, you just, you know, oh, the battery's going low. I'll just Take it out, you know, open the back, take it out, put another one in. Now you need a screwdriver, razor blades, everything to get in that phone, you know. Yeah. And it's been great for Apple for two reasons. One, they can charge a lot for changing the batteries. But two, I think in most people's minds, at least in wealthy countries, they're like, oh, when the battery is dying, it's time for a new phone, you know, which is which is amazing. What an amazing transformation of, you know, consumer psychiatry, psychology.
0: Um, Yeah. But the interesting thing. We used to be a we used to be a society that, hey, learn to fix your own car. Right. And now our cars are the same place. I mean, uh, try to try to repair a Prius. It's like it's like repairing a uh, a, a, an iPhone. Yeah. But, you
1: know, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, economics is, you know, sort of creates necessities and creates skills. And I think probably some of the most enjoyable time I spent reporting in the last five years was, again, in developing countries where people are taking these devices that we think of as not repairable and they're repairing them because Uh they have an economic incentive to do it. You know, because they are so expensive. Think of, you know, Cuba repairing. Cuba for decades was famous for repairing old American automobiles from the 50s and 60s. You know, why did (laughs) they do that? Because they couldn't import many uh, cars, but also they were poor and so they had no other choice. Well, in in lower income countries, the incentive is there to not just open up the iPhone, open up the MacBook and, you know, see how to fix it, but to develop the skills, develop businesses and and actually do it. And the the sophistication of the repairs that are being done in places in Africa and Southeast Asia are unbelievable. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I. A few years ago, I had a Sony laptop. They don't make them anymore, but it, it had just stopped working. And I, I brought it with me to Ghana and brought it to a repair shop that I'd been spending time at reporting on. And, uh, and they opened it up and they're like, oh, this circuit on the board is completely fried. And I'm like, well, that's the end of it. And they're like, what are you talking about? We'll just take that chip off and we'll put, you know, wow. we'll solder another one on. And I'm like, first of all, uh, nobody in the U.S. would do that. I mean, there's no, no economic incentive to do it. But find somebody who has the skills to do it. You yeah. know, those skills aren't there. And I saw that over and over and over in Ghana, not just with electronics, but, uh, you know, with cars where, you know, there's, you know, secondhand cars are huge in Ghana. And what a lot of people do in Ghana is they go to the U.S. and they go to uh, insurance companies that have cars that have been totaled in accidents in the U.S., meaning they're not going to be given back to the owners. They just give them the cash. Well, the Ghanaians will buy those cars and bring them back to Ghana and fix them. Totaled cars, wow.
0: you know, you know, and they're, they're, and they're paying to ship a totaled car. Yeah. First of all, the cost of shipping must be extraordinarily low to have that be worth the money. Well, what they do is they won't just send one; uh, they'll put them in containers. You can actually, I've seen it done.
1: You see it? It's there's a there's a, uh, a couple of businesses in the Bronx that do this where they'll put three cars in a shipping container, basically hang them on chains. Within the container, and they're swinging freely in the containers. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Wow! So you can put three cars in there, and then they ship them. And I think from New York to Ghana, gosh, I think it's at least the last I looked, I think it's about thirty five hundred dollars to send a, a container over, and then wow. there's taxes and everything. But but it ends up being a really lucrative business for the people who do it. You know, yeah. and again, it speaks to the fact that they've developed the skills, but they also have the economic incentive to do it um and uh and and so that makes these repair skills that we think we've lost here uh you know really uh thrive in these places and and that's it's really fun to see
0: but some of these companies uh i know that a new trend in electronics is yeah. to literally make it impossible to repair the devices oh, because right. um i can't remember exactly what part it was but i believe apple did this where apple software will recognize that you have yeah. done a third party repair And then, oh, this was for uh, iPhone screens that they were doing this. Um, If there was a third party iPhone screen replacement, it would detect that that had happened and make the rest of the phone not work. And, you know, for a company that's as vertically integrated, tightly controlled as Apple, that means, well, unless you're going to completely sideload a pirated version of the operating system, which is a whole other thing to do, then it makes the repair impossible are we seeing more of that? And is that a threat?
1: We, we absolutely are. And yeah, that's a great example of um, where they, they did that a few years ago, where, yeah, you, you couldn't get the True Tone colors, I think, off the screen at one point, if, unless it was unless the screen was replaced um, at an Apple uh, facility. And I think they did lock the screens. They also have with their new, um, in the last year or two, they, they've inserted a chip. On the uh, in the actual laptops that they make, I think it's called the t two chip. that basically means that that you know once this device is locked, you know, once you've closed, if somebody you know gets rid of a computer and they don't give the password to whoever uh, is buying it, that that computer will never be opened. it's It's not able to be used. right.
0: I actually read about this because it's a side effect of uh, actually very good security practices right. on Apple's part that like you can uh, sort of by default encrypt your entire hard drive. Um, and so that like the computer cannot be booted in any way or erased unless you provide the password. But that means that if you don't unlock it before you donate the computer, uh, then, It's completely useless. It's a brick. Yeah. And so if you're listening to this, if you uh, are upgrading to a new Mac and you've got an old one, make sure that you follow instructions for how to decrypt the drive and wipe it and put a new fresh version of OS X on it before you do that. Because otherwise it might literally be useless to the next person who is trying to just make use out of it and make sure the thing doesn't have to go into the landfill.
1: Yeah, two two points on that. One, it's not entirely useless. Here was something else I found really surprising: is uh, there is a market out there for bricked computers, and what huh. they're used for is parts. Yeah. So you know the screens, maybe get the drive out there. I mean, there's there's certain parts that you can get out of there, and there's there's a really thriving market for that. Now, give the password for goodness sake. We don't want bricks, but but I, I you have you do see people buying, and it's not just overseas, but even in, within North America, uh, you'll see people buying old devices, even bricked ones, because they want the parts, you know, out of them. Uh, the good news is at least there's people trying to to stop this practice. I mean, uh, you know, I've talked about it a lot over the last uh, couple of years in my work for Bloomberg as well, as right to repair laws, which would basically yes. force companies like Apple to, you know, make available its software keys so that somebody who buys a used computer, a repair shop that, you know, wants to fix something where somebody's lost their password, whatever it is, can actually do it. Um, you know, and that's not just about the environment, you know, it's also property rights uh, as well. You know, I, I grew up feeling like if I buy something, I own it, you know, but the problem with these, these new approaches where you have these software locks, you know, it, it's not always the case. You know, you're, you're ceding some of your sort of traditional property rights, the right to fix your stuff, the right to do with your stuff, what you want to, to the companies that make it.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. Cause I've always seen those right to repair laws, which are mm-hmm. a Kind of law on in general, I very much support as yeah. being about my rights, as being, yeah. hey, I should have the ability to repair my stuff and use it as long as possible. And I'm frustrated that the company is taking that away from me and forcing right. me to to go through them and and removing my right to tinker. Right. Um, right. But what you're also describing is that by fighting those laws, which I know Apple has fought against <sighs> a right to Horror. repair laws very strenuously. Well, they're also. Making the entire supply chain less environmentally friendly, more wasteful because they're reducing the the ability of all of humanity to make better use of these things instead of them hitting the landfill.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's not just about software locks either. It's about parts, you know, Mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, if you want to fix stuff, you need to have access to parts. Um, and one of the things that Apple, and you know, we can pick on Apple, but it's not just Apple. I mean, you know, it's everybody. They're the best
0: you, at it. They're not the only ones trying to do yeah. it. They're just extremely excellent at it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're excellent at it. But I mean, it's it's camera manufacturers. Nikon, you know, uh, is, you know, is is restricted the the you know access to its manuals and to parts. You know, you have to get your stuff fixed at the authorized service center. But well, mm-hmm. what happens if you're in a place that doesn't have an authorized service center? You know, yeah. Uh, you know, they don't have access to the parts, and so that's that's the other side of this. So you know, again, it just it just makes it hard for people to maintain their stuff. Now, it may very well be good for Apple to be selling more more stuff, and they've indicated in the past, for example, that when they expanded access to battery replacements, it actually hurt sales of new phones. So that's mm-hmm. very much in in their mind. But 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 you know, ultimately, I think it's it's bad all around. And and if anything, like auto manufacturers should have taught Apple is. There is money to be made by selling parts and offering service. And if you expand access to it, that's going to be good for you. You know, there's there's people who are going to use that stuff.
0: Thinking about this in an environmental context, uh, this really opens my mind a lot because something I've talked about in my past work is that uh, recycling as an American approach to dealing with waste is way overblown. We put way too much emphasis on recycling um, Mm -hmm. and You know, the here in L.A., we've got the black bin and the blue bin. And I feel good about myself when I put stuff in the blue bin. But the (laughs) the fact is most of that stuff is unrecyclable um, and that uh, or at least a very good amount of it is. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, we need to be focusing more on the first two R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, And what this is sort of telling me is that, wow, the reuse part is much more massive than I thought. I thought reuse meant me turning an old tire into a planter or something like that. Right. Uh, but but what you're saying is so many of these things, uh, we're talking about clothing and electronics, but it must be, I imagine it's true of other product categories as well yeah. to a certain extent. They're being reused massively around the globe.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, uh, you know, it's there's... One of the things that I thought was so interesting as I really started diving into secondhand is there is somebody who wants your used stuff somewhere in the world. The hard part mm-hmm. is how do you connect the buyer and the seller? Right. You know, if, that, you know, if that person's uh, living in Kinshasa and, and you're in San Francisco, You know it's the, the cost of shipping that stuff may not be worth it to anybody. But, but that's the cool thing about this business is that it's sort of scaled in such a way that a lot of that stuff can get to that person in Kinshasa. You know, and so so that's that's the the really cool part It's a massive business and again, as I said earlier, I mean especially in places like uh, West Africa, like East Africa, retail is second hand, so there is an outlet for this stuff. Um, the bad news is that generally speaking, you know the course of of the global economy, notwithstanding the fact that we're in the midst of a pandemic, but has been upward, and as people become more affluent, they want to buy their own new stuff, mm. you know. And yeah. they do want to transition out of that. And so, um, that's a longstanding concern, not just with mine, but I mean, a lot of people, uh, in the secondhand business saying, you know, what happens as, you know, East Africa becomes more affluent? Will they continue to want to buy secondhand stuff from Canada, from the United States? And I think the answer probably is not in the volumes that they do. And so, um, yes, right now you have this, this marvelous system, but it's, it's, it's the, the long-term prognosis for it probably is not
0: growth. It's probably shrinkage. And despite the fact that it's happening, like it's not like, oh, my God, the global supply chain is actually really good and not hurting the environment that much because look at all this reusing that's happening under our noses. Um, It's better than if it didn't exist. But at the same time, we're still producing too much stuff and using it too quickly and throwing too much out. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing for me that was most surprising, most troubling, most interesting all at the same time And in, in doing my work on secondhand was just how much of it there is, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and for uh, for all of this thriving trade that's out there, and it is thriving and it uses millions of tons of this stuff. There's so much stuff more that isn't getting used, um, yeah. you know, and, you know, I remember being in Mississauga, Ontario, being at a very massive you know, you know, three hockey rink sized warehouse where they were sorting clothes for export. And in one corner, you know, were piles of jeans to the ceiling, you know, uh, and the ceiling was three stories high. And I said, what's going to happen with those? And they said, those are going to go to the landfill. And I said, what do you mean? You know, people love used jeans. And these are low quality, you know, Walmart jeans. There's no market for them secondhand Mm -hmm. in North America. People in developing countries don't want them. You know, you can't use jeans as a rag, you know, mm. to wipe your, you know, wipe down a bar counter. So ultimately, you know, that stuff's going to go to the landfill or, or maybe it's going to be, you know, in an incinerator and turned into energy, uh, you know, to power the lights, you know, <laughs> right. and, and, and so there were just, there were so many cases of that. And and so many cases of things that just simply can't be reused. I mean, every goodwill you go to in the back room, there's going to be a bunch of bowling balls in the back because people donate bowling balls and nobody wants a secondhand bowling ball. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, to a store, bowling balls everywhere, you know, and I just, I mean, it's just like, what do you doing? He was bowling ball. There, you know, there's nothing to be done. Maybe that's a business to start. I don't know. Um, you know, and you know, there's lots of examples like that. And so, you know, I mean, over the years that I've worked on this and it, it you know, it, it, I, I was never much of a shopper in the first place, but I certainly became less of one spending time in Goodwills. You just, you just start seeing all this stuff and you start going home and you saying, what's going to happen to all this crap on my shelves? Yeah. And, you know, and it just sort of, It wasn't even a, I want to save the planet. I'm going to stop buying stuff. It was more of a, oh man, I just don't want to buy any more stuff.
0: You know, (laughs) (laughs) this is the equivalent of you go to the meat processing facility and you, and you become a vegetarian. Exactly. Perfect parallel. That's, that's amazing because you're also so impressed by this process, but you still had that reaction to it yeah
1: and it was sort of a long term thing, but you know I found you know I spent a lot of time I think some of the most interesting reporting I've ever done was spending time with professionals who clean out homes for people mm-hmm. who are downsizing into retirement or they've passed away and, and families need help cleaning cleaning out the stuff. and I, I spent time with people in the US and Japan who do that work, very similar businesses and to a person, to a person, they all say the same thing in the course of a day with them. Oh, I don't buy stuff anymore, you know. Even though they're 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 important gears in this whole global market, you know, because they do sort of top level sorting. They're seeing a lot of good stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and they they know how lucrative it can be. In many cases, when you go into somebody's house and clean it out, there's yeah. potential to make a lot of money. You know, they don't want to do it. You know, they'll say things like in, in North America, they'll say, you know, when I go to a wedding now. I don't buy off the registry unless it's like experiences, gift cards, you know, to go to a restaurant,
0: you know, <laughs> I'm
1: not, I'm not buying wedding China for sure. Wedding China. Don't buy wedding China. The world doesn't need any more wedding China. You yeah. Know, it's, 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 uh, it's,
0: you know, it's They're traumatized by all the stuff they've seen. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, I mean, I think I, to some extent was as well, just doing this kind of reporting. It, it becomes disturbing after a while.
0: Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that final R, about recycling. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we've talked we've talked so much about the reusing piece. You just talked to us about the need to uh, reduce. Um, yeah. But in terms of uh, our stuff being broken down for parts, melted down into slag and, and being made into new things, um, you know, we've – I've talked about in my work again about how recycling in many ways is an idea that's been sold to us by uh, goods manufacturers in order to mm-hmm. assuage our guilt, right? Yeah. Rather than right. – refilling the soda bottles at the uh, beverage distributing place like we used to do. Uh, now we buy plastic and we throw it in the recycle bin. We say, oh, it'll probably turn into something new one day, and we don't feel <laughs> so guilty about it, when in reality very little of that stuff is. Does that uh, – do you share that view or, or- – Having looked um, at the supply chain so, more specifically,
1: yeah. So I I'm I remain um, a big fan of most recycling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and most of what's recycled in the world is not plastics. I think we focus a lot in recent years on plastics because of the ocean plastics crisis. Because we have so much fucking plastic, right. yeah, yeah. But but you know, for example, half the steel supply in the United States is recycled steel. Hmm. You know. You know, and that's that's a number that doesn't get thrown around very much. You know, every toilet paper manufacturer in the United States, North America and Europe uses some amount of recycled content in its toilet paper, which is pretty key during a pandemic. You know, um, these are essential components to making the stuff that we use, um, whether it be cars whether it be uh, Amazon boxes, which have huge amounts of recycled content in them. And so, you know, if you cut off that supply, if you tell people, ah, eh, recycling's a big scam, we're not going to recycle these cars anymore, we're not going to recycle these cardboard boxes anymore, you're forcing manufacturers um, who rely upon it, and every manufacturer of any scale in the United States, Europe, anywhere, relies on recycling to some extent, you're going to force them then to say, okay, well, I need raw materials, where yeah. am I going to get them? And yeah. so... And, and I'd, know, never make go-
0: that, I'd never make that argument. We've always focused on, hey, this is not a free pass, right? Recycling, right, right. recycle what you can, but it's that first R that's most important. Reduce yeah. first.
1: Yeah. From an environmental perspective, I'm, I'm all about reducing. I mean, and, and that's where I come from. And if you can't reduce, reuse. But, but I, 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 I get defensive about recycling because the fact of the matter is we're all going to be using new stuff, you know, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and we are going to want recycling to be a part of that supply chain. And we just will, because if we're not recycling stuff, we're going to be cutting forests. You know, we're going to be digging open pit, you know, uh, iron ore mines. We're going to be using sulfide mining up at Lake Superior, you know, to get copper because we're going to need copper. And so, you know, that stuff's going to happen anyway, because, you know, for the foreseeable future, we're going to be living on Earth and manufacturing on Earth. Um, And so the more we can recycle stuff, the more that we can encourage uh, the recycling of that stuff, uh, the better overall it is for the environment. But by all means, by all means, reduce your consumption as much as possible.
0: Yeah. Uh, One thing that really strikes me in hearing you talk about this is how much the job of doing this reuse And this recycling also is really degraded work. It falls upon folks who are working in really tough conditions. I think about recycling again here in L.A. Actually, this is true in New York as well when I lived there that, uh, you know, one of the best forms of recycling is, uh, you know, aluminum can recycling is the deposit recycling where you get a nickel back. Um, And that stuff is being recycled. My understanding is far more efficiently than the stuff you just toss in the bin because it's like sort of pre-sorted when you go to the... The, when you go to the machine at the supermarket and you put it in a little crusher and it gives you your can, it's, you know, uh, that's a supply of just raw aluminum, basically, that can be turned into uh-huh. new cans. Um And so there's folks who go around um, in New York and L.A. who go through people's blue bins, who the people who are not going to be bothered at the houses of the people who are not going to be bothered to take the stuff to the supermarket and get the five cents back. It's not worth the money for them. They go root around in other people's recycling bins in order to extract that stuff. Right. And I look at that and I think, man, those people are actually doing valuable work. That person pushing the shopping cart because they're sorting my recycling for me. And yeah. they're extracting value from the marketplace by doing it, and they're using that to support themselves. Why on earth are they having to push a shopping cart around my neighborhood at 1 a.m. in order to do that and go <laughs> through my stinky trash? That's awful. And once I realized that, I started like separating out my redeemable, all my LaCroix cans, and then. Yeah. Putting like literally just putting them on the street so it was easier to access. And now that I've been working with unhoused folks in my neighborhood, I actually will bring them my cans because I know they do recycling. I'm like, here you go, and they're you know they're they're grateful to receive them. Um, But I I wonder about that as a microcosm of is this a larger issue? Like those folks that you describe in Ghana who are going through our old electronics, um, are they? Exposing themselves to risks that uh, we would rather not put them through in order sure. to deal with well, all of our waste.
1: Sure. Well, this is a question in a profession very close to my heart. As I as I told you when we you know first started, I come from a recycling family. My great grandfather right. was a scrap peddler, out Galveston, Texas, picking stuff off the streets. You know, and um, you know, as as a as, as a teenager, I actually you know I never I never um, scavenged streets. Um, but my father would put me during the summers and after school, he put us, we had a little can machine where I would actually work with those people and, and, you know, weigh their cans and, and pay them out. And, and it's not a nice job either. You know, believe me, especially in the middle of summer when somebody's bringing in, you know, Saturday nights, p- beer cans, uh, you know, you've got bees <laughs> buzzing around. It's just the shittiest job in the world. That's another story altogether, but, but it, but it does get to the point, which is not pleasant work, you know? Yeah. And, uh, we did it. We had a little junkyard, um, you know, what I've always called recycling and peddling and scavenging is it's the entrepreneurial opportunity of last resort. You know, mm-hmm. if you can't do anything else and you want the chance to make your own living, this is available to you. Um, it is not always clean work. It is not always safe work. And there are organizations around the world uh, who try to work with scrap peddlers, scrap scavengers, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, and work with governments to ensure that they at least have basic equipment. It's been really important, for example, during COVID, um, because, you know, if you're picking up, um, you know, used um, food containers, used beverage containers, potentially that contains, you know, or at least has on the surface, you know, virus. Um, You know, we still don't know if that's the case or not. I wouldn't want to oversell that, but it's possible. And so you had a real effort in places like Brazil, I know, um, parts of Indonesia, where you had uh, NGOs at least trying to get face masks and gloves to some of these workers. Now, they won't always wear them. And that's something else I've learned. I mean, I've seen, you know, some of I've seen the worst recycling you can possibly imagine. I mean, things you would not want to even think about. And and more often than not, you'll see people not wearing safety equipment. And you ask them why not. They'll say, well, it's too hot out. Well, yeah. I guess it is, but you know, you're breathing cyanide bud, you know what you think yeah. but you know, you know, but it's like, well then you gotta buy that mask. You've got to buy that N ninety-five mask. And so you have to take it from that perspective. So um it can be and it is occasionally um quite dangerous. Um but I think it's a, a profession that people do enter in um, you know, choice is a tough word, but there is a choice in doing it. Um, and in many cases it's the only choice available. So I'm very careful about stigmatizing it too much and turning the people who do the business into victims. Um, because I think one of the great things about it is, is that they're, they're actually to some extent in most cases that I've encountered, I've encountered some, um, you know, are able to empower themselves by this kind of work.
0: Yeah. It sounds it's like tough the story though. Yeah. It's tough though. It's tough. Yeah. It I've heard it sounds like, you know, once you start talking about like the textile industry, for instance, in, in developing countries, that it's a brutal industry. Sweatshop mm-hmm. labor is a real thing. At the same time, plenty of uh countries have this is like the first industry that they use yeah. to raise up their economy. And both things can be true, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we yeah. can we can decry though that those horrible working conditions and we don't need to accept them, but also uh there's this other part of the story as well that we need to take into account.
1: Yeah. You know, and it's, I've, I've always said, you know, it's, it's, um, people really want recycling to be this black and white issue or black and green issue. I Mm. guess you would say, and I've spent my whole life around it and it's not, it's gray zones and people are never satisfied, you know, with gray zones (laughs) They're not, they're just not, I'm not either, but you know, it's, it's hard. And, and, you know, a lot of people come to the topic of recycling saying, wanting to say, this is bad for the environment. This is bad for people, but then you got to present me some of the alternatives, you know, and that's, you know, and, and that's where it gets difficult. Okay, we'll shut it down, but then what are we going to do? We're going to go clear cut some forest so you have the cardboard for your Amazon box. You know, do you want some sulfide mining on Lake Superior so we can have that copper? I mean, you could say, well, you can hand out, you know, masks to all these people. You can hand out uh, gloves to all these people who are doing this work. You can. Um, will they use them? Do they want to use them? Do they want to pay for them after you stop giving them out? You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a simple, you know, again, yeah. black and green uh, no, equation. Not-
0: not at all but the point that i try to make is yeah. that recycling is not the solution to our no. problems like and it is yeah. often sold as the solution right. to our problems right. like um I, i'll just give an example i was at uh the environmental media <laughs> awards which is a, an award ceremony in hollywood for shows that have environmental messages and we yeah. happy to say we won one for our show But one of the presenters, uh, I won't say who, but a a celebrity said, hey, uh, guess what? I have a box presented at the at the beginning of the show. I have a boxed water company and all of our boxes are recyclable. And guess what? The stage that I'm standing on is made from our recycled boxes. How great is that? You know? Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, dude like you're still shipping water around using fossil fuels by truck, right? When people can get it through pipes. This is not a green industry. The fact that you are, you know, you're talking about the recyclability of the packaging has nothing to do with the fact that this is an industry that like, we need to frankly eliminate if we're going to solve the climate crisis. Right. Um, Well, and and this
1: gets to something we talked about earlier is that for any manufactured good, the carbon footprint of that good, the biggest part, you know, usually 75% plus is in the manufacturing. It's when you make the good, you know, and that's, and and, you know, usually less than 5% is in the disposal process. You know, the Mm -hmm. disposal process is, you know, driving it to the landfill, and then over a hundred years, it emits some methane, you know. But for some reason, we spend all our time focused on that 5%, and so little time focused on that 75%, and it drives me nuts. You know? Yeah. Because I mean, I look. I've spent my whole career sort of in the muck, in the trash, in the recycling. Sure, spend more time on it. I, but but if you really just want to look at it from a carbon perspective, why are we spending all this time on the disposal of stuff when we should be looking at how we're making stuff in the first place?
0: I I've got another great example of this. The 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 salad chain Sweet Green. Have you heard of this chain? I think I have. I, it's a fast anyway. casual. They, they do salads for office workers who just need to like load some lettuce and chicken into their mouths as quickly as possible on a lunch break. Right. right. And they're trying to be very healthy and green. And what they do is uh, they've got no uh, silverware. They've got it's all disposable silverware. Right. But they okay. say, well, all of it is compostable. Right. We we can <laughs> compost all of it. Right um and uh, it's made of like plant proteins or whatever like space-age plastics um so even if you go dine in there you don't get you know a fork and a knife you get like a uh a a plastic fork or a a plant-based fork and like a a paper bowl thing and what we what was revealed by some investigative reporting is that even though they say it is compostable they cannot find anyone who will compost it and in fact they they were working with a company that said they were composting it but was in fact throwing it into a landfill because that that like waste management company couldn't figure out how to compost it either and like there's all this they're they're promising this thing of like wow you know we're going to you know we're going to compost it at the end when the real solution is just use forks and knives yes. <laughs> like just have yeah. metal silverware and hire a fucking dishwasher right. to wash the shit um, right. that would be the greener solution um right. but they've decided not to do that. And so it's that promise that offends yeah. me, the promise well, like of biodegradability.
1: Biodegradability yeah. is the one that gets on my nerves. Mm. Uh, you know, and we've, you know, biodegradable plastics, and there's been really great studies. There's a, a, a brilliant academic in uh, Georgia, Jenna Jambek, who's, you know, actually just taken these biodegradable plastics and sort of dumped them in the ocean and let them sit there for a while. And she pulls them up after a couple of years, she and her lab, and lo and behold, they're still plastic. You know, they haven't <laughs> magically gone to green heaven you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, but, you know, people love that, you know, that bio part of biodegradable, but it, you know, it doesn't mean a thing in actually achieving biodegradability. I mean, you know, in ideal circumstances, if you need to have these fermenters and it needs to be at these very high temperatures. It's all bullshit, right. you know, right. you know, but we're all looking for this way to feel better about our consumption. You know, and and, you know, some of it is companies say, oh, well, look, we've got these, you know, compostable forks and knives, you know, feel better about coming here, you know, or whatever it is. And and ultimately, like, I think the best way to feel better about your consumption is to do less of it. Yeah. You know, that's that's been my approach,
0: you know. Well, so why is that so hard for us to do? Because we all sort of know that in the back of our minds. Right. But it is, you know, you, you wrote about the where we started this conversation was you know, your observation that we are much more focused ethically on the moment w- that we throw something out than on the moment when we buy something, that that, yeah. that it, we're we're far more engaged um, in that moment of disposal than in the moment of acquiring. Why yeah. is that? And why is it so hard for us to reduce? It's hard for me to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah anybody it is. I, I don't want to hold myself out as, you know, as a paragon of virtue. You know, I, 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 I struggle with the same stuff. You know, I mean, we live in consumer societies, um, you know, the way we live in cities. You know, we're not out in the fields, um, you know, cultivating our food and bringing it home to cook it, uh, you know, in our bare hands. We need packaging. You know, you can't live in a city without some degree of packaging, even if it is reusable packaging. Um, You know, when you start adding these things together and with the powerful marketing that goes on and, and, and the desire for social status, because, you know, so much of consumption is status driven. Um, you know, these are all things that are just tightly wound up in our culture that make it hard to, to let go of these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I don't think there's any single, you know, answer and any single you know piece of advice that you can give to get people to say, I'm going to let go. I mean, my best piece of advice, and it's very grim advice, is, you know, after one of your relatives passes away, save the cleanup for yourself. And I guarantee you, after you go through that process of letting go of, of somebody's stuff who you really loved. Um, you are going to think very differently about acquisition, you know, um, and, and, and that's why I'm somewhat optimistic in, in a, a, a limited way about consumption is I think uh, sort of at least in the U.S. There's a lot of people about to go through that process. The boomers are aging, you know, mm. and so there's going to be a lot of people and they're you know, one of the most acquisitive generations ever. Yes. Houses, full, houses full of stuff, you yeah. know, like never before. And 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 I think it's going to be a very painful process. And I think we'll see books written, you know, over the next 10 and 20 years about about just how hard this process was to go through And You know, I don't want to say I'm optimistic or hopeful, but I I suspect that'll have a cultural impact. You know, that's just a
0: guess. What do you hope people take away from your work uh, when they read it? or What do you hope folks take away from this conversation?
1: Well, I think one, I, I always I always want people to, you know, I think it's easy for folks to look down on people who do recycling, who will do secondhand or who buy secondhand. And, and I always try and emphasize the people who do this work, the people who want these products, uh, they want it for the same reasons you do. They want to make a living. They want something that they like to wear. There's dignity in it, just as there's dignity in anything, you know, any of us do. And it's, it's a topic very close to my heart because it, it runs very deep in my family. You know, I, I always, when I'm, you know, in these places where I see scrap peddlers, you know, I love to talk to them because they do the same thing my great grandfather did, you know. And, yeah. and so, you know, and so that's very important to me. You know, the other thing I, I, I want people to take away is simply that, um, you know, is the reduce equation as you've hit it so hard. I mean, there are lots of ways to mend the planet, you know, that are sold to us. But ultimately, the most important one is that reduction of consumption. And it's not easy for anyone. And, and again, I, like I said just a moment ago, I don't want to hold myself out as a monk you know because I'm not I'm not a paragon of you know uh, minimalism but you know I do my best and I guess you know we're all human and that's the best we can ask of each other
0: I think I amen to that um I also think what this conversation has done for me is it's going to make me it's fired me up even more about buying stuff used <laughs> yeah <laughs> what it's and, doing when, when you yeah. go to the goodwill man that is that really is one of the greenest places around isn't it if you're up there
1: And and one thing I I, the one piece of one recommendation I've given uh, when I've talked to people about shopping is, you know, if you can afford to buy better, you know, and what I mean by that is, you know, if you have to buy something new when you're buying it, say, you know, is this something that I can give to the Goodwill at some point and they're going to be able to sell it on, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you can afford to buy that better thing, buy that better thing, buy that thing with the idea that it's going to have multiple owners. You know, you can't do that with every object you buy. But but there are objects you, you are going to buy new. You know, think in those terms, you know, if you can afford to do it. Not everybody can. It's a privilege to be able to do that in a lot of cases. But it, but it does mean that your stuff is going to, to continue living and bring, you know, use and happiness perhaps to other people. And again, you know, lower that overall carbon footprint because we're going to be manufacturing less.
0: Amen to that. Adam, thank you so much for being here. This was an awesome conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much to Adam Minter for coming on the show. Check out his book, Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, wherever books are sold. Hey, but get it on bookshop.org. That's a good alternative to Amazon, in my personal opinion. And, hey, that is it for us this week on Factually. My name is Adam Conover. I want to thank our producers, Dana Wickens and Sam Roudman, our engineers, Ryan Connor and Brett Morris, Andrew W.K. for our theme song, You can find me at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media, or at adamconover.net. If you want to send a thought to this podcast, send it to factually at adamconover.net. And hey, we'll see you next time on Factually. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.